Uh, we got some hard-hitting verses this morning as we end chapter 2 of Philippians. Apostle Paul just packs it in there, those, these words. So, Starting in verse 1, he says, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Bible commentator H.A. Ironside remarks on this passage, and he points out that the whole section can be summed up by the last word in verse 4, others. In life, we are surrounded by others, whether in the family or at the workplace, in a local church, even here in this room, we find ourselves amidst others. As Christians, we find that we are called to love and to serve others. We're sent to them to share the filling that we receive from God. But despite that calling, we find that within ourselves we have a great capacity to damage the others around us. In his writings, Paul frequently points out the struggle within ourselves between the flesh and the spirit as believers. This analogy may be a bit simplistic, so I hope you forgive me, but we're sort of like a vehicle with two gas tanks now that we're Christians. Two reserves and and sources of fuel, two propellants that we choose between throughout the day. The first is the one that came stock when we were created. It's the flesh, it's the sin nature. And Paul explains how this tank operates here in this section. But the second fuel tank is an add-on. It was installed by the master craftsman, Jesus Christ, when we gave our lives to him. And as far as add-ons go, you know, uh, it's a pretty plum deal, really. You know, not only did that add-on increase our value as people, but it comes with a lifetime supply of fuel and an eternal guarantee along with it. So, you know, as far as if you were going to add something onto your car today... You know, if Ron was here, we'd all ask him to put an add-on like this onto our vehicle. But that's the condition of our hearts that we find. As we move forward in life, we're still given the option, though. We're still presented with that AB fuel switch, you know, maybe labeled BC and AD. You know, the power of, of the flesh before Christ and the power of the Spirit now that we're in Christ. The problem, of course, is that when we choose to live in the flesh, drawing on sinful worldly reserves... And then we cannot accomplish the work that God has for us to do. He's rewired us as individuals to have a different purpose and a different uh, focus, a different destination. And we can't be unified with others around us if we're drawing on the BC fuel and not on the reserves that the Lord supplies for us. And so this is what Paul teaches us about as he opens this chapter. So back in verse 1. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy. As many of you know, lots of times when the Bible says if, it really translates better as since. And this is one of those times. So when you see if in this verse, just read since. There is no question to the reliability of these characteristics which God supplies by His Spirit. We're given consolation, which is another word for encouragement. We're given love. We're given fellowship of the Spirit. We're given affection and mercy from heaven. Those incredible resources are pumped into our lives right now, and they're available to us today. They reside in that spiritual fuel tank that the Lord has given us. They're part of our relationship with God through the Holy Spirit, and they're therefore available to us day in and day out. And so because of that, Paul says in verse 2, 
Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. I like this verse because it's pretty clear that Paul is attempting to drive home his point, right? I mean, be like-minded, have the same love, be of one accord, be of one mind. You know, I mean, he's uh, going out of his way here to really get this home to us. Paul is speaking about unity and, and our love for one another. He's very plainly saying, look, you need to do this. I'm going to repeat it four times right here. You need to do this. You need to be unified in Christ. And he's repeating it again and again so that we won't miss it as people. So that we don't say, oh, I wonder what Paul really means by you know, being unified. And so, so let's unpack this a little bit and get a sense of what he's talking about. First, it's important to see and recognize that we have a great capacity and a great potential to either heavily encourage or heavily discourage the others around us. Our behavior and our example, even a single word, can do incredible improvement or incredible damage to others that God has placed in our lives. Our lives are not lived in a vacuum. Our words are heard, our habits are seen, our tweets and status updates are read, and they're felt by the people around us as we broadcast our lives to people. And even a few short words could either stumble others or it could actually push a person nearer to God. And that's an important thing to remember. And it is a hard truth to internalize um, because sometimes we think, well, I, you know, it's not a big deal. I'm just saying this. You know, I'm just talking. We're just, you know, I'm just doing this out in my life. But if we focus on the fact that we're part of something greater than ourselves... We're part of this massive building project, this massive initiative by God to redeem the world. We are part of it. Then it's going to cause us to filter our lives in such a way that we will intentionally speak to edify and encourage. And we will intentionally avoid those areas where we might uh, complain or break down a person or discourage a person. And uh, we need to think about that because our activity and our speaking and our, our living does impact the others around us. Secondly, Paul calls us to be like-minded here. Obviously, even as Christians, we're going to have differing opinions all, all the time on all sorts of issues. That's okay. But we're still called to be like-minded. Okay, So we can be like-minded in our desire to disciple Christians and reach unbelievers. Uh, to, to fulfill the Great Commission. To do what the Lord has called us to do as believers and as a church. We should be like-minded in that. Now, even here in this area of discipling Christians, we find, or, or reaching the lost, we of course find disagreement within the church. You know, lots of people on one say, side say, well, this is, you, you have to reach, you know, unbelievers by doing this, and then other people disagree with that. And so the question is then, okay, well, really, Paul and Holy Spirit, how are we supposed to be like minded with the church at large and with the others around us? How do we do those things? How do we reach and disciple? How do we, you know, do what you're calling us to do? And of course, we remember that when God commands us to do something like this, he's commanding us to be like-minded with the others around us, uh, he enables us to do that supernaturally. And so this is an area where we have to pause and step back and realize that in our human effort, we cannot accomplish this kind of mission on our own. We can't accomplish this kind of unity without divine intervention. We can't do it. We have to use the reserves and the supply that the Lord has given us. Now, luckily, we do have the filling and that fuel tank from God, which moves us forward in this calling that he's given to us. He says, OK, now you have a purpose and I command you to be like minded with the people around you. And you sit back and you think, well, Lord, I can't do that. And he says, well, yeah, you you can't do it, but I can do it through you. And I'm going to equip you to do that. 
1 Corinthians 2 verse 16 explains to us that as Christians we've been given the mind of Christ. And so there may be disagreements, but we're called first to take on the mind of Christ. And every Christian is supplied with the mind of Christ. To switch from that BC tank, the mind of the flesh, and move forward in the mind of Christ and in the power of our Lord. Oftentimes when we're disagreeing about things, it's because we're trying to solve a problem or move forward, uh, sometimes using human effort. Or at least one party, let's say you have two parties and they're disagreeing. You know, uh, more often than not, one of those parties is still re- drawing upon human or worldly reserves or, or, or methods or ideas. And God says, you know, I gave you the mind of Christ and I've given you this supply so that you can be like-minded and go forward doing what I have commanded you to do. So in this verse, after like-minded, Paul says that we're to have the same love. Okay, so what love are we supposed to have? Well, we're, we're to have the love that Paul had. Even for those who are trying to compete against him using the gospel back in chapter 1. Remember those people who were saying, oh, you're in prison. I'm going to rub this in your face and show you that, you know, I'm competing for your, you know, your, uh, uh, your community that you're in. And I'm competing to be a greater evangelist than you are, Paul. And Paul said, hey, I rejoice that they're preaching the gospel. Uh, I don't really care about the personal attacks that they're leveling against me. He had love even for those who were doing that in chapter 1. We're called to the love that Jesus had even for Judas Iscariot. I think it's a pretty remarkable thing if we really take a minute to think about the fact that Jesus Christ, the God-man, you know, uh, maker of heaven and earth, had really love for Judas Iscariot, you know. uh, In the garden he called him his friend and he was reaching out to him and and even though he was, you know, the one who betrayed him and uh, the Gospels tell us that Judas would rob from the um, from the the treasury that they had as a ministry, and, and uh, you know Jesus had love for Judas Iscariot, and that's a a just mentally deafening thing to think about. I think that's a love that is unconditional, even it, when it is rejected. That's the love that we're called to. That's the love that we're saved by, and it's the love that we're filled with by the Spirit of God. And the Lord says, "Okay, what I've done for you." is loved you unconditionally, and while you were yet a sinner, I died for you. And guess what? Now I'm going to pour that into you so that you can show that to other people. We're all, as Christians, to love each other this way, very purposefully. And it's hard, but it is a choice that we can make. We can choose to say, okay, Lord, I need your help to love the way that you want me to love. And I know that you've filled me with your... You know, uh, your spirit, who is the third person of the Trinity. I know that you're with me and you're not leaving me or forsaking me. I know you've given me your mind. I know that you have showered me with your agape and enabled me to show agape to other people. And so I want to do that. And so it's a purposeful choice that we have to make. Then Paul says, being of one accord. Uh, Actually being together with one another, not separate, sharing our lives with one another, discipling each other and sharpening each other within the church, not being individualistic six and a half days a week and then coming together in the church like it's a social club, but really being of one accord, understanding that the church is a living and incredible organism that is connected throughout the week and across the world personally and powerfully and saying, yeah, I want to be a part of that. I don't want to be a, an island, a man unto myself. I don't want to, you know, separate myself from everybody else. And then a few hours a week I come together and say, well, I'm a part of this church service. But recognizing that, yeah, I'm called to be of one accord with my fellow believers. And then again, at the end of this verse, Paul says to be of one mind. 
This repetition is helpful, I think. What God is dealing with in this passage is very, very important. In our sin nature, we are wired for individualism and selfishness. But we become Christians and then the Spirit rewires us for relationship and service. It's a complete turnaround from what we naturally are born into. We're living members of God's body on the earth. And so when we decide to fuel our lives with the flesh, when we decide to switch back over to that BC gas tank, it causes horrific damage to the church at large and the relationships in our lives that we have with the others that God has placed us with. And so God has come and said, no, what I want for you is unity. What I want for you is, is that your life would be characterized by the kind of love that I showed to Judas Iscariot, the kind of love that I showed for lepers and Samaritans. That's what I filled you with. That's the direction I want you to go. And I want you guys to go together using you know, my word and my mind, which I have delivered to you, to accomplish this great work. Verse 3, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, uh, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. The flesh is about selfish ambition and conceit and self-centeredness. Those characteristics are enemies of unity, and therefore they are enemies of the church. Jesus Christ came to earth not seeking fame, not seeking fortune. He came to save and to serve, not be served. You know, most of the time the Lord was trying to get away from the multitudes and they were just following after him. And so you couldn't really make a case from the Gospels that Jesus came and, and tried to establish some sort of mega ministry. He was the perfect sinless son of God and was doing all kinds of incredible teaching and healing and stuff like that. And so obviously many thousands were drawn to him. But oftentimes he's like, man, I just want, I, I just want to get away into the wilderness so that I can pray. And so we find that in the example of Jesus and in the teachings of the scriptures, self-centeredness and selfish ambition and pride are enemies of the church and enemies of Jesus Christ. They are ungodly and they are not eternal. Those things are not going to last in heaven. Uh, fighter Muhammad Ali used to say what? I am the greatest. That's his big quote. And he did accomplish some impress impressive feats from a human perspective. He is a man who had great confidence, great conceit even, great pride in himself. Uh, he's famous for that pride. He laid hold of personal fame and fortune here on the earth. But what about today? Uh, with due respect to him as an individual who Christ loves, today he's a diseased, feeble old man who has a name and a few good stories, and that's about it. And uh, to my knowledge, he is still a practicing Muslim. And so Muhammad Ali has done nothing for heaven, nothing. And for all of his conceit and all of his, you know, uh, uh, you know, grandeur, he's done nothing, nothing for his creator, nothing of eternal value. He epitomizes what it means to, that our lives are a vapor in the eyes of heaven. You're a name, you're a story, and now you have a crumbling body. You're just waiting to enter into eternity. And nothing you've done in the last 68 years is going to last on the next side of eternity. It's all just gone. It's all vanity. You have some human notoriety, some wealth, and it's all about to vanish as you move into eternity. And um, I think that's a sobering thing. If we want God to increase, which we do, then we have to decrease. That's one of God's laws of spiritual physics. You know, um, that's the way it goes. God cannot increase if we are increasing ourselves. Um, he, as far as his testimony in our lives and our usefulness for him. We have to decrease if we want God to increase 
in our hearts and in our lives. We have to daily purge pride from our hearts and from our minds. We have to purposefully esteem others better than ourselves. And that is counterintuitive to what we're naturally wired for. But the Lord has come and given us a new mind and a new heart and, and as new creations. And so we need to take take on those reserves of meekness and humility that God has filled our hearts with so that our lives will have heavenly weight, so that our lives will be meaningful on the next side of eternity, so that we're not standing in the way of God using us, so that we find ourselves investing in heaven, not to magnify ourselves, but to glorify Jesus. In Matthew, uh, it said this, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify yourselves. No, and glorify your father in heaven. We have to purposefully say, yeah, I want to be small so that the Lord can be great. I want my life not to be an increase for myself, but I want to glorify the Father in heaven. That's what I care about. That is what's life, what life is all about. But we have to choose to operate under the influence of the Spirit, not under the selfishness of the flesh. We have to be willing to humble ourselves and take on servanthood. We have to jettison selfish ambition because it is incompatible with a life lived for Jesus Christ. And these are difficult things to do. I'm not saying that you know, anyone can attain this perfectly, but this is the mentality and the life that we're called to as believers. Finally, verse 4. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. It's important to point out that with all of this talk of humility and self-sacrifice and serving others and all of that, God is not calling us to asceticism. Not, you know, we're not called to you know, uh, uh, just go live you know, out in the wilderness. You know? perhaps, you know, uh, perhaps some believers throughout history and even today are called to a great level of material sacrifice, an incredible level, and that's fine. But we're not all called to that generally. That's not the point of our lives or the point of the church. It's not whoever gives up the most material things or thinks the least of himself who God is most pleased with. That's not what Paul is talking about. You are to look out for your own interests, meaning that you're allowed to live your life and take care of yourself and your family. But there must be a constant remembrance in our minds that we are part of something greater than our individual lives. And we can serve others and we can build them up by how we live and by how we are used by God. We can direct people to Jesus and nudge them nearer to him. We can work together to further the kingdom person to person and place to place. And so we need to be thinking about, okay, I'm not only looking after my own life, but I also want to think about the needs of others. I want to think about the help that I can do to the others around me. But to do that, to live this life, to be full of the Spirit and full of the incredible life that we read about in God's Word, we have to avoid the allure of self. That sinful vanity that we all have in our hearts. That craving for notoriety or personal glory. And what Paul is showing us is that when we became a Christian, that desire for personal glory didn't magically go away. It wasn't just immediately erased. The pride of life didn't go away. Uh, the lust of the flesh didn't go away. It persists within us. But we've been equipped and overhauled and, and as new creations. We've been given a new purpose, we've been given a new worth, we've been given a new direction and a new fuel source to go along with it. But we choose. We choose which source is going to feed our decisions and our words and our lives today. We choose. God is offering a continual filling as we pour out what he's given us. We don't run empty on our supply of the Spirit. As we invest in heaven, he is faithful to fill us up. And so if I want a fresh filling in my life, if I want a fresh work in my life, the place to start is here with others pouring out what I have so that God can replenish me with more of his filling. 
putting the needs of others truly before my own, not relating to people based on how they can benefit me or my own ambition, but really choosing to love others, choosing to encourage, choosing to build, choosing to own up to the fact that I'm not as great as I think I am. You know, that's such a great message that Paul is sharing in a gracious way here. Yeah, I am not as great as I think I am, and, and it's important to remember that as a believer. But God is as great as he thinks he is and as he says he is, and he wants to fill me and move me. He says, hey, I'm great, I'm full, and I want to use you. I want to be with you. He wants to direct us. That's what he wants, and that's what we want. So the homework, encourage somebody today. Find a Christian and purposefully lift them up with a word or a prayer or a service of some sort. And then stay fueled by the power of God. Don't click back to the reserves of the sin nature and its cravings. Go toward Jesus and bring others with you. Amen?